0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share a panel discussion titled Ideological Pluralisms in the Workplace, which was part of UVU's Center for the Study of Ethics annual Ethics Awareness Week.
1: Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, we're excited to have you here with our uh, presentation during Ethics Week for uh, the Woodbury School, and uh, we're here today to talk about ideological pluralisms uh, in the workplace. Um, we've got some fantastic people who have some great resumes and good experience in, in this area, so uh, I'm going to be mostly moderating the, um I'm I'm a talker, so I probably will jump in and give my opinion on some things as well. Uh, But first, I'd like to just introduce the people that we have here. So uh, first, we have uh, Jonathan uh, H. Westover, uh, and Jonathan is uh, a professor and the chair of our organizational uh, leadership in the Woodbury School of Business at uh, UVU. He's also the academic director of the UVU Center for Social Impact and the UVU Sim Lab and he's a faculty fellow for ethics in public life. Uh, And he previously was the associate director there in the Center for the Study of Ethics. So he serves on a host of nonprofit community and association boards and committees, and he's received numerous awards for his teaching, uh, research, and service to the community. So that's John. Uh, We also have Maureen Andrade. So uh, Maureen is a professor in the organizational leadership department at UVU. Uh, She has an EDD in higher education leadership from the University of Southern California and principal fellow status from the Higher Education Academy in the UK, awarded for leadership in teaching and learning. Her research interests include international student transitions, business education, distance education, assessment, job satisfaction, and work-life balance. She's a former associate vice president and associate dean and is currently serving as the associate department chair in organizational leadership. Uh, We also have Angela Schill. So Angela is a visiting professor of organizational leadership at UVU. Uh, She was a research analyst for McKinsey and Company and an editor for the Faculty of Economics and Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge, where she also did her doctoral work. Uh, In Central America, she was head of research for the Latin American Center for Entrepreneurs, in addition to helping form Latin America's largest women's MBA scholarship for women entrepreneurs. She graduated top of her class with a master's in Ed in Curriculum and Instruction from Penn State and also earned an MBA from Babson College. Uh, Angela's teaching and research focuses on organizational leadership, with a specific interest in women, disabilities and marginalized groups. And then we have Jaron Harvey. So Jaron is an assistant professor in the organizational leadership department where he teaches uh, the introduction to human resource management. He has an undergraduate degree in business from UVU and a PhD in organizational behavior and human resource management from the University of Oklahoma. From a teaching perspective, Jaron enjoys discussing how the advances in research related to human resource management can improve managers effectiveness and enhance employees career success. On the research side, Jaron studies the challenges that employees face when going the extra mile for their organization. His work explores some of the sacrifices and problems at home and work that employees who go above and beyond for their company experience. Uh, additionally, he has also studied how teams can overcome conflict and experience rebalance in their performance, which can be helpful for students in his class. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and introduce myself in the third person, those kind of weird. So um, again, I'm Jeff Peterson. So uh, Jeff is an associate professor of organizational leadership at UVU and is the faculty and curriculum director for the MBA program. He received a bachelor's degree in family science and an MBA with an emphasis in strategy and information systems from BYU. He received a master's of science in business administration, and a PhD in organizational behavior from the University of Washington. Uh, He had an extensive career in industry with more than 25 years of experience. Uh, He's been involved in several family businesses, several startups, and has extensive management experience, including companies such as Grant Thornton and Intel. He has consulted for Microsoft, Boeing, Starbucks, Warehouser, Premier Blue Cross, and Pemco Insurance, among many others. All right, so that's uh, the panel that we have today. So hopefully um, we have something to add to the discussion about pluralism. Um, The way we wanna do this today, um, we we, we do have just a small issue, which is that in addition to everything else that Maureen is doing, she's also on faculty senate, so we're gonna start off with Maureen um, and have Maureen is gonna, so we'll have our, our day today will be a little bit of a combination of a couple of presentations and then some questions and answers. And then we'll try to leave some time at the end for question and answers uh, from those of you who are, are uh, viewing this. So we're gonna start and have Maureen uh, give us a little presentation and then uh, move into some questions uh, for her and then we'll exc- excuse her so she can go be a Senator. So. Maureen?
2: All right. Thank you, Jeff. So that's not where I want to be. Hold on. (laughs) So let me just get my slides ready here. So I'm going to share just a little bit of background information about diversity and and its role in the workplace. Um, So there's an activity I usually do with my students in the classroom. I divide them into groups, and then without talking to their group members, I say rate the level of diversity of your group from the least similar to um, the most similar. So, and then I have them calculate their average. So they just look at each other and they decide how similar they are to each other. So you could kind of do that, just look around. I don't know who you can see where you are, but um, just kind of think about how similar or different do people look. And then I have them answer a set of questions for five or 10 minutes or so, like the ones on the screen. And after they finish answering those questions kind of about their childhood and their values, places that they enjoy and so forth. Then I asked them once again to rate the diversity of their group and then they average their scores. So what do you think happens? Um, Initially, they might see some dissimilarities and then after, depending on the class, And then after they talk to each other, they realize that they have more more in common possibly than they did before. So this kind of gets at the idea of surface level diversity and deep level diversity. So surface level is just what we can see when we look at someone, gender, age, um, ethnicity, or race, um, religion possibly, and, and factors like that. Um, and then deeper level diversity is our personalities, our values, um, uh, beliefs, and those kinds of those kinds of items. Okay, so diversity. All right. So do you like to work with or hire people like yourself or different from yourself? So just kind of think about that question if you prefer to work with people similar to yourself you might be um, that's kind of called affinity bias you just like people who are the same as you you feel more comfortable with them but there are distinct advantages to hiring people who are different or working with people who are more diverse and different Um, so there's been quite a bit of research on this area and If you have an organization with a high level of diversity and also a high level of inclusion, which means people feel comfortable with each other, they feel connected, um, they feel like they can openly share their um, beliefs, their thoughts, their values, their perspectives, um, you end up with uh, better talent and higher innovation, which leads to stronger performance, market share, Um, and just overall financial performance. So there's quite a bit of research uh, related to the value of diversity. Um, This is a TED Talk, and if you're interested in it, you can look it up. Um, It's a pretty interesting study of about 171 countries in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland, and the researchers looked at how many innovative ideas did the company actually implement and how was diversity related to those ideas? And they found, well, they kind of theorized that the companies that had the most, they thought maybe the companies that have the most open kind of leadership style where people feel that they're able to express themselves and be themselves and share their their ideas and their talents and so forth would maybe be the most innovative. So what they actually found is that the companies who had implemented the most innovative ideas and um, received revenue from those ideas had 20% 20 of their leaders were women. So they were looking at um, there needs to be a certain number or percentage um, in order to kind of move the needle on innovation. So it says innovation revenue rises as the share of female managers increases above 20%. So that was kind of the cutoff. And they did a lot of, they've done some follow-up studies and looked into this in a little bit more detail, but um, there's a, a fairly large pool of women who could be managers and. Be in leadership positions, but it um, there aren't as many ma- there aren't as many managers actually in the those positions as there could be. So all of these things on the screen are benefits of diversity, and you can just skim through those fairly quickly. And we've already talked about several of them. Um, And then just think for a minute. We've been talking about diversity here for a few minutes, but what comes to your mind when you think about it? So there are four different areas, biographical might be what people most commonly think about and that's related to that surface level diversity that we talked about in the beginning. Then there's intellectual diversity, just ability for critical thinking, problem solving and so forth. Um, some jobs, of course, require physical diversity, and then there's cultural diversity, where we can learn about how people do things in other cultures or other countries and societies and, and that sort of thing. So let's just look a little bit about at Utah, because um, Utah, the demographics are changing, uh, so it's something that we need to prepare for as employers our managers and leaders so on this slide um, we'll see let me just let me on this slide we see um, this is the national average on the top it's the minority share of the population so we're here in 2020 um, the green bar is salt lake county the blue Is Provo this deep red color is all of Utah and the purple is Utah County so we are the least diverse but the direction is going the same way for all the different counties and we are just lagging behind slightly Um, well we're lagging behind the national average but we're still increasing Mm Okay, and then this is just another way of depicting the same thing, but it's just comparing 1970 with 2013 which was obviously quite a while ago still, but we look at Utah it's below the average, but it's still increasing. And then we look at um, age so diversity also includes age, so this graph is a little bit complicated, but um, the red bar is 0 to 4, and then 5 to 17, 18 to 24, 25 to 20, sorry, 25 to 64, and 65 to 84, and the top is um, over 85. So you'll see that the, the population is aging um, uh, as we as we move forward. Um, And then just in closing, I wanted to mention a lot of companies are being recognized for different types of emphasis, emphases on diversity. So Coca-Cola, for example, they have diversity education programs and training and a speaker series, um, parental benefits um, for paid leave for both new mothers and fathers. So all of these companies have been recognized for different initiatives that they've been sponsoring. And they're they're focusing on different areas of diversity to make their companies more diverse and inclusive and recognize those benefits that we talked about. Um, Kaiser Permanente, healthcare industry. uh, There's no racial majority. 60% of the staff are people of color. Um, Three quarters of employees, half the executive team. More than one third of physicians are women and they provide culturally acceptable medical care. So when I lived in Hawaii, I actually, when I first moved there, this is the health insurance I had. And Hawaii is a pretty diverse place. So I was just kind of interested in in reading this about, you know, just their diversity within the organization as well. Um, Johnson & Johnson. They have a diversity university mentoring programs, um, helping people to understand the benefits of being collaborative. Um, And then the last one here is is MasterCard. And this one is kind of interesting because they have younger employees mentoring older employees to help them use social media. So that's like age, age diversity there. So um, that's just a little background. And uh, just to explore the benefits of diversity and kind of where we're headed in Utah in terms of uh, being a more diverse state.
1: All right, thanks, uh, Maureen. So um, as maybe kind of a follow-up to you know, that, you know, in the various uh, leadership and work roles that you've had, Um, How have you seen efforts at increasing diversity make an impact on organizational goals?
2: So I was thinking about this and um, as I mentioned in my presentation, I did work in Hawaii for 20 years and uh, I worked at BYU Hawaii and that's a very diverse school where about 50% of the students are international. Um, from 70 or so different countries. And when I first moved there, I actually, to the university, I actually lived in the dorms, and I ate with the students in the cafeteria. So I had a pretty low level position. (laughs) But um, so in the cafeteria, all the students uh, sit with people from their own countries and speak their own language. So you could call that affinity bias. But because they're more comfortable with people from their own culture and speaking their own language. And it gets very difficult to speak English all day and interact with people who are not like you. So, so that was a great um, benefit, though, at that context in that organization. Um, I mean, people did interact and get to know other cultures, but there there were still times where people wanted to be comfortable and associate with people that were more like them. Um, so that's one experience. And then when I was associate vice president in um, here at UVU, I just really realized that most of the decisions made by leaders and managers, they have wide impact. And most of them, Um, have financial ramifications as well. So you can't, as a leader or a manager, determine that impact on your own. You really, really need a diverse team. Um, You've got to have people from different areas of the university, people who are going to be affected by decisions, people who think differently, have different skill sets, um, problem solving. So all kinds of diversity is really critical. So almost every committee and task force at the university is purposely formed to be diverse so that you've got different perspectives, different skills, different backgrounds. So it's not just the, I guess, the biographical kinds of diversity, but also intellectual and and other types of diversity that really, really help you make good decisions as a leader.
1: Great, so thank you very much. So um, you're welcome to slip out as you need to to make it to your uh, Senate meeting. So okay. um,
3: you.
1: so uh, Angela, we'd like to maybe hear a little bit from you about some of the work that you're doing with uh, the entrepreneurship for, for women. So if you wanna go ahead and, and uh, share with us a little bit of that information, that would be awesome.
3: So thank you, Jeff. I just wanted to share a little bit about this project that I'm working on with a team of researchers that helps to increase our education and diversity here at UVU. And what we're doing is we're putting together case studies and they in particular, these case studies are focused on local women, entrepreneurs, business owners, CEOs, and women in other leadership capacities as well. And the purpose in doing this and- yeah, I, I just wanted to share a little bit about this project that I'm working on. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit of feedback here see, okay. So the the purpose of these case studies is twofold. So first of all, we get to connect students with the local business and leadership communities, which 90% plus of our students end up working for these local companies. And then number two, we get to produce some great teaching materials from local sources so we can bring local leaders into the classroom, both through reading about them in the case studies and also inviting them in personally to the classroom or virtually like this to learn more about their experiences in real time. And it becomes a duly beneficial benefit for both, it's a benefit for both people because the professional gets to visit the classroom and has an opportunity to address um, and problem solve issues that they, they are facing or that they have faced and get a little bit of a different perspective from the students. And another additional benefit is that students have this special unique time in the classroom to address real world issues that they either maybe have faced before in the workplace or will, and they can get practice and insight and perspective and then develop the insight that then when they walk into the workplace, they can use use this information to help them in their own careers. And so one of the most inspiring elements of doing this work is actually having the privilege of interviewing these women in Utah who have accomplished so much. And often it's in the face of failure and challenges and barriers and limitations. And so to hear how they have been able to get through those and kind of sometimes just hear that that they, they deal with flat out failure and then how they've picked up the pieces and moved on. And I just wanted to share one story that I think is really fitting for our topic today about a woman. She was an entrepreneur, business owner who, well, she is an entrepreneurship business owner who was first working for another company, quite a big company and doing really well. We'll call her Gina. And The gist of her story was that Gina was starting to see that one of her black female colleagues was being singled out and really sabotaged by a group of managers on a continual basis. And it got to the point where she couldn't, she couldn't handle watching this anymore. And so she complained and she she could see this blatant campaign to oust her colleague. And when she did that, she was fired. And then later on, when higher-ups, her superiors, found out about what had gone on, they came back to Gina and they asked her to come back to work for them with a 25% increase in her salary. And Gina turned them down because she couldn't any longer work for a company where this kind of behavior had been perpetuated within the culture, where people had accepted it and allowed it to go on. And she valued diversity and equality. And so, the interesting thing is doing this and suffering from this consequence of quitting her job actually became a springboard for her with her next career path, which is a little bit of a different story, but it's, it has a good ending. But these are the kind of stories and information that are cropping up with this research that we're doing. And it's helping to inspire and change, hopefully, workplace culture and students within the community who and women who might otherwise um, not have a lot of the insight and benefit of all these other women who are building this foundation and example of how to deal with challenges that are sometimes unique to being a woman or a minority or a marginalized group in some way. And then having that ethical integrity, wherever we fall in that spectrum as men and women to learn from these stories and then have the courage to take those kinds of stands.
1: Well, thank you. Um, so Angela, to kind of follow up on that. so. Um... to to what extent does, you know, whistleblowing about ethical issues kind of supersede your own employment security in an organization?
3: Now, I think this is kind of a moving target for people depending on where we, where our individual values are in terms of what we see as being ethical and where we draw our own lines. But I think it comes down to the kind of culture that we want to perpetuate in our workplaces, in our communities, and within our lives. And so, for going back to Gina's story she could have easily justified returning because the people had reached out acknowledged there was a problem and offered you know they apologized and offered something to her to make up for what had happened but i think she had kind of a she had an internal drive to make a bigger statement than just this one situation and so her code of ethics that she had to value diversity and to value fair treatment she was willing to sacrifice her career in order to, she didn't sacrifice her career is really the truth, but she left a place where she didn't want to see racism or prejudice perpetuated among her colleagues. And the amazing part of Gina's story is that she went on to start her own company. She's a business owner and entrepreneur and it's made a huge statement and what she does, she took this experience and it changed her so much and it it impacted her that she now goes and her job, her business is in the business of removing textbooks in, in children's schools and classrooms that perpetuate stereotypes. She noticed that these textbooks were just old and not updated and they weren't valuing diversity. So she removes those and replaces those with um, textbooks that evaluate, I mean, not evaluate, but value um, diversity and So this is something that she did to celebrate and value diversity and make a difference and change her life and become much more successful had she stayed where she was. So I think, you know, it's a, looking at her example, we all have a different way to do that, but we receive courage and insight from her story. And then we can decide where we draw that line and where we stand up and say something. And I think in the current climate, more and more of us who say this actually can, um, initiate greater change and have less of these circumstances cropping up in the workplace in general.
1: And and I think you bring up a good point that sometimes people think that um, efforts towards uh, diversity and fairness really uh, are only benefiting marginalized groups, but they actually impact all of us in an organization. And, And the research shows that most people want to be somewhere where uh, there is diversity, and where they feel like people who are different are, are valued, and so that that can be what's missing. Sometimes is other people who aren't necessarily marginalized who need to have the courage to stand up and say, "Hey, I see something uh, that's that's wrong." Instead of saying, "Well, it's up to the minority to fend for themselves," and and uh, so I, I think that's a, a good good reminder for us that. We do need to be champions uh, when we see things that are unfair in others, even if it's not towards us. Um, So I'd like to switch maybe. um, So Jaron, you know, we were talking about a little bit about this idea of kind of ideological pluralism. So um, maybe you could kind of tell us what uh, what ideological pluralism looks like in the workplace. So how would you kind of explain that?
4: Ideological pluralism, first, uh, just a general idea of what that is, is um, we all have different ideologies, so sets of beliefs that we have about the world around us, the way things function, and you can have an ideology about almost anything. You know, for instance, because I graduated from the University of Oklahoma, I have a very specific ideology about what makes the best college football program. Um, in the country, and it's a lot of Heisman trophies and lots of points and good offense. Um, so that's sort of an example of ideology. And when we talk about pluralism and ideology, we mean that people, you know, can coexist with these different sets of ideas about, you know, the way the world works and belief systems. And so, in the workplace, I think what we have to become more and more comfortable with. As Maureen and and some of what Angela also said kind of suggests is that as we diversify in the workplace and we bring more people in and, you know, different uh, groups of people who may have been part of the workplace, but are are increasing in numbers as they join in greater numbers, we're going to have a lot of different belief systems. And so um, as employees, as managers and bosses, owners, and in all kinds of different contexts, one of the things that we just have to become more adept at and understanding um, about is the fact that people don't always see things the way that we do you know there's um uh, there's a fundamental uh belief that most people have and and it's uh it's a self-serving bias and and this is a really healthy thing despite the fact that it kind of sounds negative right when you say self-serving bias we all kind of get this idea like, oh, they're in it for themselves. But the self-serving bias is really, it's a, in some ways it's a psychological defense that we have that we we tend to look at the things that we do in a very positive light. And we explain our successes through that kind of a lens. And it, when we encounter failures or things that we don't agree with, we, we tend to push them away because of this bias. Uh, and so, one of the things that we have to do is, is try to, you know, to the degree that we can sort of tamp that down and be more open um, in, in our work environments. And so, you know, f- just from a, a beginner's perspective of what does it look like um, and, and what do we need to do? I think, you know, first we have to recognize that we're gonna encounter a lot more different uh, belief systems and ideologies in the workplace You know, at at sort of an increasing rate just because of the changes that are happening um, on a large, not just Utah scale, but really a global scale. And then think about it in terms of, you know, being more open and and trying to tamp down some of those initial kind of reactions that we might have when things are different. Um, Kind of going back to what Maureen said about the students that would sit together at lunch um, and, and talk to people who were part of their same group, that's a really common thing. It, you know, we, we often in the social sciences refer to it as the similarity attraction paradigm. And it's just the idea that we like to be around people who are similar to us. You know, for me, kind of going back, if you're not a Sooners fan, I really don't want to hear your opinions about college football. Um, And, and I feel like, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's, I've got some validity for that, but um, the reality is we have to recognize that change that's happening and be more open to, you know, these different sets of beliefs and find ways. I think an important thing is to find ways to communicate and talk so that we can gain some understanding and, and, you know, find the
1: value in those different sets of beliefs. Great. Um, I I'm, I'm wanna come back to some of those ideas in, in a minute, but I wanna switch over and, and maybe ask John um, if you could maybe talk about, you know, what are the different kinds or different forms of kind of ideological diversity and uh, how can we best leverage the different backgrounds and ways of thinking and understanding of the world that people have?
0: Yeah, um, I, thanks for the question, and thanks, uh, Jaron and Angela and Maureen for for your contributions. Uh, I, I think much of what I want to to share is just building on what's already been said. Um, as Jaron mentioned, really, we can have ideologies about just about anything, right? We we usually think of ideologies in terms of political ideologies, religious ideologies, but it really can apply to to almost anything, um, and people, you know, we talk about tribalism a lot, especially in today's political context. Um, but it's, it's not just religion or politics; it's it's brand tribalism. You know, I know Jeff, you're you're a, a huge Mac person, right? You love Apple, um, and you're committed, you're loyal, and you know, we we all have those things, right? That we that we have this um, this Commitment to perhaps a bias towards, and most of the time that's not a big deal. It's it's perfectly fine. Um, you know, for example, for for me to prefer PCs and for Jeff to prefer Apple, uh, no problem there, right? Um, but th- the problem comes when when we start to other those that don't agree with us. Uh, and so if I start to think Jeff is stupid because he likes Apple, um, that's a problem. Uh, If he thinks I'm stupid because I like a PC, then that's a problem. Uh, Same thing in in political circles, religious circles. Um, And so I I think it's just really important for us to recognize, to remember that very thoughtful, intelligent people can look at the exact same set of information, the same data, and often come to different conclusions. Uh, And that can be frustrating when that person sitting across from you disagrees with you and they see something from a completely different perspective. Uh, I, I, I understand this in my head, but it doesn't always play out in practice when I'm talking to someone and I get frustrated uh, because I, I just can't fathom, I can't understand why they have the perspective that they have. Um, some of that wrestle is healthy and, and necessary. As long as we're open to dialogue, then we can work through that. And as long as we treat each other with dignity and respect and we're willing to hear each other out, and try to find common ground, then that wrestle, that tension actually becomes beneficial. Uh, Where it's really unhealthy is is when we really get entrenched in our own ideology, when we really um, just dig in and where we start to otherize those who disagree with us and and start to judge them and start to um, break down any sort of meaningful communication with them. And unfortunately, I feel like in society at large right now, we see a lot of that. And I think participants in Ethics Awareness Week this week you're you're hearing about that in a lot of the other sessions. In the workplace, it's not always quite the same, right? We we you know typically aren't talking a ton about religious ideologies in the workplace. We're typically not talking a lot even about politics in the workplace, though it can come up. Um, but but we we bring with us all sorts of different um, perspectives and point of views, biases. Uh, even prejudices that um, that we need to be aware of and and everyone else has already so eloquently you know explained the value of of diversity, the value of inclusive inclusivity and belonging within the workplace, and why that's really important. Um, one way I like to think about this uh, is with Plato's allegory of the cave. Um, so many of you are probably familiar with this allegory. The basic idea is that you know, we're, we're basically in the shadows within this cave, we have a very limited view of the world, very limited um, perspective. And our reality is what we see based on the light that's in the cave and the shadows that are cast. And it's not until we start to emerge from the cave that we can actually start to see uh, a, a richer, broader um, view of reality and, and, and the world around us. Um, I, I lived in um, in Asia for many years. And and early on in my time living in South Korea, I learned about a Korean proverb that's actually very similar to It's actually essentially the same meaning behind Plato's allegory in the cave, um, allegory of the cave. And that is frog in a well. The idea of frog in the well is that, you know, you think about yourself as a frog at the bottom of a well, um, it's, it's wet, it's cold, it's dark, you're trapped. You can't get out. Um, so there's some negative descriptors, but there's also, but you're safe, right? You're, you're probably, you don't have predators going after you when you're at the bottom of a well. Um, and it's quite a different thing if you were born at a bottom of a well versus if you happen to be hopping along and you jump in and you fall down the well and then you get trapped. Um, so usually when we're talking about a frog in the well, similar to the allegory of the cave, we're talking about someone who is born there. That's, that's their whole world, that's their existence. And if you don't know any different, you don't know that you're trapped. You don't know that you're cold, that, you're, um, that it's dark. You don't know that you only see a small sliver of the sky above you. That's your whole reality is what you experience down there. Um, but as we, as we grow up, as we get education, as we mature, as we experience um, difference and we're, we interact with people um, who aren't like us, who don't come from the same background as us. Uh, we start to, you know, figuratively rise out of the well. We start to go to the top, and as we get to the top, something interesting happens. Um, and and now I'm I'm expanding upon the original meaning of frog in a well. But this is my own thinking about what happens when you're that little frog and you peek your head over the top of the well. Um, you look out, and all of a sudden you realize, first of all, the sky is vast. You, there's so much sky you didn't even realize it was there before. You see the mountains. You see the all the Uh, variety in the landscape. You see there's lots of other animals out there too. It's not just you and like the little bugs at the bottom of the well. And for the first time you're experiencing all of this stuff, right? The other thing that starts to happen is that you start to look around the landscape and you see that there's actually all of these other little wells dotting the landscape. Um, So yours is not the only well. There are hundreds, thousands of other wells with little frogs peeking their head out um, all across the landscape. And they're all experiencing the same thing that you are. They all had their, their upbringing. They all had their own individual um, belief systems, their own norms and values um, that they learned in, in their home and in their communities. And, and for the first time, now everyone's starting to realize, wait, there's other stuff out there. And people tend, and people or frogs, right? They tend to have a, a few different reactions. Um, one reaction is that all of a sudden, you get scared because you're not safe anymore. Uh, Once you peek your head out of the well and you see all these predators out there and you see the vastness of the world around you, then um, you can get scared and you know the well, you're comfortable with the well, that's everything you've known your whole life. And so a lot of people will just retreat back down the well or re-entrench in their ideologies. Others will get excited. They'll say, hey, I wanna go explore and they'll hop around, they'll go explore the landscape uh, and they'll let's say, oh, look at this other well, that looks so interesting. And they'll go peek down another well and then they, they decide, oh, that's really cool. I wanna go live in that well now. And they'll just trade one well for another or they'll trade ideology for ideology. And we see this all the time in in uh, politics and religion and, and a lot of different facets of life, right? Um, I think it's the third option, I'm sure there's more options, but the way I think about it, the third option is once you're out of the well, you start to hop around, you explore, you start to realize the vastness, the complexity, the messiness, the nuance in the world around you, but rather than getting scared or rather than saying you need to replace your previous ideology with another ideology that can help you make sense of the world, that now you're going to embrace the world. You're going to embrace the, the, the all the differences. You're going to env- embrace all the different um, cultures and all the different perspectives that people bring. With them to the world as as they're experiencing it for the first time. Um, I think the group of people that fall into that third category tend to be kind of small uh, because most people like comfort, they like certainty, they like um, they they like the known, right? And and inherently, once you get out of an ideology, then you you're opening yourself up and you're quite vulnerable. Um, so I really like the allegory of the cave, I like the allegory, I like the proverb of frog in a well. And I think it speaks to what we can strive for in terms of inclusivity, diversity, belonging, and really lifelong learning. Uh, and I think it all applies into the workplace. Because if, if and Maureen talked to this a minute ago, um, Angela and Jaron talked to this a little bit as well. You know, if, if I'm a leader and a, of a, a vast organization, a large uh, company, And I have big decisions to make that are going to influence a lot of people. Uh, And I'm stuck in my ideologies. I'm like stuck down in my well. How much of reality am I actually able to observe? How much am I actually able to take in as I'm trying to collect data, understand perspectives, and trying to make a good decision? Uh, I don't think you you really are taking in much at all. Uh, And so, Part of the way you counteract that is by having diverse teams. So even if you do have people stuck in their own ideologies, at least you have different ideologies around the table um, that people can uh, push back on each other. And if you create a safe space, then you can have a meaningful dialogue. Um, The other way is is to recognize that you don't necessarily have to restrict yourself to any uh, ideologies, uh, any preconceived biases or prejudices. and that's not to say you have to get rid of whatever uh, values, norms, beliefs that you were brought up with, but it just means that you're willing and able to acknowledge the goodness, you know, in others that come from different backgrounds and different perspectives. And rather than looking at someone with a different opinion or perspective than you as someone who is lazy, evil, um, uh, stupid, you know, whatever the derogatory kind of um, statement, but you... you you for the first time, you might be able to really recognize them as as an actual human being willing or or worthy of your dignity and respect and of your patience with them as you go through a dialogue process to try to understand each other. Um, And in the workplace, we need to have that so we can make good decisions that will impact lots and lots of people, Uh, all the employees, the customers, the environment. You know, there's all these stakeholders that are going to be impacted and influenced by the decision that maybe one leader is going to make. Uh, So we better um, understand the weight of that, right? And and I know if I'm a leader, I don't want to make all the, because of that weight, I don't want to make all the decisions on my own. I want to to have a collaborative environment where other people can can help carry the weight. And, And that only happens as I empower the people around me, as I try to seek out input, as I try to incorporate that input. and then we have a better chance, at least, of sidestepping bias, of sidestepping prejudice, even the implicit biases that we're not even, you know, aware of going on in the back of our brain.
1: So thanks, John. In fact, I kind of want to take off from what you just said and maybe direct a question towards Jaron, which is, so is there a place for personal ideology in the workplace? So kind of the, the counterpoint to John of John saying, you know, kind of, you know, not, not embrace that, is there still a place for people to have a personal ideology? So I think you,
4: the, the, the short answer is yes, there is a place, but as an employee, you have to recognize that when you enter the workplace, for most of us, uh, you what we typically think of as our right to free speech and some of these other uh, rights that we feel like we have in the, the public sphere, sphere, those disappear. So you don't actually have, for most people, the right to free speech in the workplace. So while there is a place for someone's ideology in the workplace, they need to be very thoughtful about um, both whether they can express that and how they can express it. And they also have to recognize that an employer uh, is completely within their rights to ask them to not express their ideology. And so for some people, That could be kind of a make or break type of issue with their employer. If their employer is not going to be supportive of their specific ideology and the things that they believe, then some employees might need to find somewhere new. Um, While other employers, they might encourage that and they might encourage a dialogue between employees. And so in a workplace like that, it's gonna be okay. So the The really short answer that always drives uh, especially students crazy to a question is it depends. It depends on especially your workplace um, and and the the particular things that they've decided about people expressing their opinions and their beliefs in that workplace.
1: Yeah, I think um, the example that comes to mind is I believe it was Ford. Um, who had a policy where they said you know you shouldn't wear political things so a MAGA hat was not appropriate uh, to wear at work but but they were allowing people to wear BLM shirts and so there's kind of this question to say well wait a minute so when is it a political thing like as a party versus a movement and and so you know there, there certainly are examples where companies will come out and say um, you know we, we just don't want contention by you know expressing an ideology that may be uh, unpopular with some of the people that are that are there at work so but you know on, on the other hand and i'll maybe just open this up for anybody some companies on the other hand take very strong company ideology just like they have kind of a company culture and then you've got people who are working there who maybe don't fit into that same kind of ideology that the company has so what are your and again, anyone can kind of jump in on this, what are your feelings? Should, should companies do that or should companies try to avoid having a, a clear ideology that they support? So I'll, I'll
4: just jump in a, a little bit um, just from the build on that idea that you mentioned, Jeff, that some companies seem to have some pretty strong ideologies. Um, so I, I tend to think of Starbucks um, for years, Howard Schultz, uh, he was the CEO of Starbucks, and he did some pretty, uh, at, at some moments, some pretty brilliant things to bring I- ideological conversations into the workplace. And then there were moments when those things that they did didn't go over too well. And I'm thinking specifically of when he had, uh, he actually said he wanted the baristas to have conversations about race relations with the customers. And they, They printed on the side of their cups. Uh, I believe the phrase was race together. And I think all of that happened after um, the the issues uh, with Michael Brown, the the killing of Michael Brown and and Ferguson, Missouri, and some of the other things during those years. And so, uh, you know, I think at least from my perspective, the nice thing about being in an organization that's very clear about what their beliefs are, what they value, what their culture is, is that you can make a decision as an employee. You can either opt in or you can opt out. Um, I think the, the more frustrating thing for me as an employee would be to be somewhere where it's really not clear and people don't actually have those conversations because must try to seek out information and clarity to reduce the amount of uncertainty around us. And so if we can't communicate and people are not, um, you know, clear, the organization's not clear about what its belief system is, then you're kind of left in this spot where, you know, is, is this a company I can stay at or is it my supervisor that I'm not happy with? I, you know, my perspective is, it's nice when the company's clear.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Jaron. I'm I'm happy to jump in too. I mean, I'm a general um, fan of people-centered organizations that allow individuals to be their authentic self in the workplace. Um, So they can, they can be their whole self and they can, you know, whatever roles they have, whatever um, identities they have, that they don't need to hide those away when they're at work because of um, you know, kind of this, this limitation on ideologies, uh, that you were mentioning in the question. Um, now that can be really difficult to navigate. And so I agree with Jaron. I think that the first and foremost, we just need to be clear uh, as an organization, you need to be very clear about, um, the type of culture you want to have, how you're going to go about fostering that culture, and in some of these particular areas, you know, what are you, what are you, what's your approach gonna be from a policy and practice standpoint? And then be consistent uh, so that people know what they're getting themselves into. And, and people may self-select in or out, depending on, on the, the value congruence fit with the organization. Um, and and it's, it's just tricky. I mean, there, there's, it's, it's not black and white, I don't think. And you know, I, I, as you were asking that question, Jeff, I was thinking, I'm sitting here, I'm I'm recording this in, in, at home right now, right? But I, I always wear this, my uh my pride bracelet. Um I've worn this every day for probably like the last five years uh for personal reasons. You know, it's important to me um to signal and to demonstrate that I'm an ally. And so that's something I wear. Now in some organizations, that could be seen as um kind of restricted speech, that they, they don't want that kind of advocacy similar to what you said about the Black Lives Matter shirt or, or paraphernalia or whatever. Um, now, if, if you, decided to say, we don't want any, any of that at UVU. And so I couldn't wear my bracelet. I, I honestly would have a problem with that. And I would probably voice that, um, that opinion. And ultimately, if, if that was something they felt so strongly about that they wanted to enforce, then UvU wouldn't be the place for me anymore. Now I, I say that that's obviously not the case. UvU has no problem with me wearing my pride bracelet or having my um, having my safe zone uh, thing up in my window of my office or any of those types of things. Right? We're an inclusive campus, um, but that's that's the point. Is if if you and you can in invite and allow for one form of expression, but you restrict other forms of expression, that's where it starts to get really, really sticky, really fast. Um, So just that's, that's my comment.
1: Great. Thanks. Um, Angela, um, I know you're having some connectivity issues, but I didn't want to kind of see if I can catch you on, on one thing that you have some particular expertise in. So hopefully uh, we can get you So, you know, so much of the, the focus for hiring managers is on finding people that've got the right abilities to do the job. So, so, what can people do to not overlook people who have abilities, but also have some kind of a disability?
3: So, I think this is such a good question, and I, I love that those metaphors and analogies that John talked about, in emerging from the cave or the well, because I think a lot of, especially when you're talking about disability, this disability there is are a lot of fears or preconceived notions that people have, and. So being willing to face that a little bit and be, get educated and come out of that, what maybe our preconceived notions are and understand, I mean, we all come to the table with some sort of disability, some maybe more you know visible than others and to different degrees, but just being able to open our mind to a different way of doing things and getting to know a person and not just seeing the disability as kind of the, everything, but that's a characteristic of a person. And you can ask them questions about that. So many times when you're talking to someone that has a disability, the biggest question is people avoid me or they're afraid to talk to me or um, they're scared. And so breaking that wall down and being able to say, what is life like for you? How has this been? How has, and of course we have different laws and regulations of how we address these issues, but showing that you're open and curious and supportive to somebody who can then to you about how the way they navigate the world I think helps when you're hiring to understand that these people that have some sort of disability have they're capable and oftentimes different areas that they have had to navigate in their world because of the limitations that are set due to their disability they've had to become innovative and they've had to learn how to do things differently and with more um just that that spirit of not giving up and so they have a different vision of seeing the world and often I think about Temple Grandin and her experiences as somebody with autism and how because of her experience as a child and and the things I won't get into too many details about her life but because of her unique perspective she came to the world with all of these these um, insights that helped her become prolific in the ways that she gave advice to she, she often talks about humane treatment of livestock and slaughter of animals and she's done so much research and scientific papers and she's an autism spokesperson and people are willing to listen to her and give her a, a platform and then people can see how very capable she is so i think <laughs> i'm kind of rambling too here but you get to know them you see their capabilities and be flexible ask questions and be willing to be amazed at people's unique perspectives because of their disabilities. So, in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, I can remember, you know, when I first came to UVU, we had a finance professor who was blind. Um, And so it was, uh, you know, you think, well, gee, why would you bother hiring a blind finance professor? Um, But he was actually one of the most popular professors that we had, he was very, very Mm -hmm. good. And, you know, there were just all required was uh, a little bit of technology for him to be able to do that. And, you know, the government provides money for uh, work-study students. And so assign a work-study student for the things that require any kind of written stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, we would have missed out on a very fantastic professor had we just said, oh, we don't want to bother with the trouble of having to deal with a, a blind person. So um, so it looks like somebody in the, in the chat had asked, um, you know, I think this relates back a little bit to maybe what John was saying. So you know, what are UBU's guidelines on expressing personal uh, ideology, and that does it vary from professor to professor? So, although anybody can answer this, but.
0: A uh, good question. I'm, I'm not sure I'm aware of any specific um, restriction. You know, we have academic freedom. We have, we, we do have the ability to share our, our thoughts and opinions, but we're not, we're not free or at liberty to do that in some sort of a manipulative or abusive way, right? So I can't uh, browbeat a student, you know, who, who has a different political perspective than me or, or economic or social perspective on something, right? Um, and that would never be appropriate, but I can share my opinion. Um, now, frankly, for me personally, other than things like wearing my bracelet, I don't really express those types of opinions usually in the classroom anyways, um, because we're, we're focusing on the subject matter. But outside of the classroom, you know, if a student comes to my office and they want to have a discussion about something or talk about careers, talk about things more broadly, you know, I, I, I've never felt restricted in any way to, to be open uh, and authentic. Yeah, and so, I think, you know,
1: general professors have a lot of leeway because of, of issues of um, academic freedom. Uh, obviously, you don't say things that belittle somebody or make fun of, of something like that, But uh, but in general... Um, you know, you've used philosophy courses that they're, um, you know, inclusion is a big deal here. So they want to be inclusive. And historically, that's the way the universities were. It was kind of a, a marketplace for ideas, and anybody could express ideas, even if they were unpopular or bad ideas, because we could discuss them. So it, it pains me to see some universities start to squelch that and say that certain ideas can't be talked about on campus because. The way you refute a bad idea is not to silence it; it's that you uh, you address it and point out its flaws and and the problems with it. So, I've never felt at all at UVU like I wasn't completely free to express uh, my opinion about things. But I don't have an opinion that's like a, a bad, you know, a, a terrible, a racist opinion or something like that. Uh, so it, it's pretty free to be able to to speak. So, uh, Jaron, I think I cut you off there. So do you have a a thought.
4: Yeah. So earlier I, I mentioned that in the workplace, in most workplaces, your, your freedom of speech rights don't actually extend. Um, so universities and other uh, places that are federally funded, state funded organizations, your right to the freedom of speech actually does extend there. And so beyond just the university culture of wanting to have, like Jeff said, a, a place where You have the competition of the best ideas or ideas in general. Maybe some of them aren't really the best. Uh, You we do. We are protected um, through freedom of speech laws. Um, Now, I I completely agree with both, you know, with with the sentiments that have been expressed before this. We should never use that to browbeat someone or do anything. But uh, just based on the laws and the way they work, uh, federal federally, you know, essentially funded organizations do have a little bit more leeway when it comes to things like freedom of speech.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, now I think, you know, is a good time uh, if if there are other comments that people, there are questions that people want to make to send in to to Brian from the chat, we'd be happy to address them. So um, if not, um, I have a couple other things that I can ask but we certainly want to make sure that people are aware that uh, I think we have uh, about 10 more minutes. Um, so if you have questions you'd like to direct to us um, send them uh, in the, the chat and uh, otherwise we'll kind of continue on with some other kinds of, of things here so um, so another thing that I've been kind of thinking about is um, you know most people are uh, support the idea of trying to have the same kind of um, ethnic and gender makeup at work that you would find like in your local community, you know, so if you got 20% Hispanics in your community that you would have that, you know, at in in a workplace uh, as well. So everyone pretty much agrees on that. But there's very much disagreement about how to go about that. So some people say, well, we should put, you know, quotas and say, We need to, out of our next group, hire 20% of them to be Hispanics. And other people are very against that idea. So does anybody have any feelings about, uh, you know, the the kind of this issue of, is is it okay to set quotas to try to match these? And especially in a business standpoint, what's the, is there a business case for saying, yes, we should have a quota? So I know it's probably a charged question, but. Just
4: just to make sure everybody's clear, because I find there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. In the United States, it is illegal to use a quota during your hiring or promotion or any type of employment process. Just so anybody who's watching, it is, you know, I just want to make sure and clarify that. So Jeff is talking about that in a hypothetical way because there are countries around the world that do use quota systems. So for instance, India and Singapore, I know both have different quota systems, um, but in the U.S., we what the Supreme Court has essentially the rulings have have led to is the idea that when you're trying to increase the diversity of your organization, it's okay for you to pay attention to things like demographics and 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 those types of surface level characteristics, but you can't set a hard and fast goal to have you know, X percentage of your people be, you know, part of a certain uh, demographic group. So just, just to provide, you know, so uh, absolute clarity on that, because that's, that's one that in my, my HR class, we talk a lot about um, and make sure that students are clear on. Um, So just to kind of address the question, do we, you know, should there be a quota system? I don't, you know, I don't know because there's, There's research on both sides of this that suggests um, using a quota system can have some unpleasant consequences uh, for certain people in the the labor force where it can also have some really beneficial consequences for other people. So for instance, I, I read a study earlier this year that was published in a journal where they did an experiment Um, where they explicitly said that a certain percentage of the winners of this game that they were playing as part of the experiment would be women. And what they found was when they stated that explicitly, um, women stayed in the game longer and played more rounds than they did in the situations where they didn't state that. And so, You know, what quotas are and and other language like quotas, like the uh, affirmative action statements that you see in a lot of hiring postings and other things is their signals and people behave, you know, they change their behavior based on signals. Um, Now, interestingly, as conversations around race and diversity have ramped up in the United States over the last several years, uh, there was a study by Harvard that found that people that look like me, so white guys, uh, were increasingly uncomfortable and more likely to think that negative career related things that happen to us are because we're part of a majority class. So uh, what the research says, uh, you know unfortunately is you're damned if you do and and in some ways you're damned if you don't. yeah, I you know, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. No.
0: I, I was just going to say you're absolutely right, Jaron. Uh, both from the research standpoint and from the legal standpoint in the courts, uh, it's, it's so interesting to follow the case law around this issue. Um, but there have been some pretty um, significant Supreme Court cases um, around um, quotas and, and uh, those sorts of approaches, both in the workplace, also in, in higher education institutions. And I, you know, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting, I remember that, I don't remember what year it came out, but maybe in the early 2000s, there's a, a big case um, with the law school at University of Michigan. And, uh, you know, they, they prioritized, they basically gave um, individuals, applicants, you know, from minority populations bonus points in their, um, in their evaluation process as they are admitting students. And the idea was we have systemic issues around gender uh, and race, and they wanted to try to break down those systemic issues and give people um, that otherwise wouldn't get a chance, give them the opportunity. What they actually found though, was that, let's take for example, uh, an African-American student who applied for law school and got accepted, um, and they, they got bonus points you know, because of their race. What they found was, um, those individuals weren't particularly disadvantaged. Uh, they came from high SES families, you know, they came from uh, ho- homes that, ha- you know, where they weren't first-gen students, where where their parents, um, you know, where, where they had a high level of prestige and, and uh, economic well-being. And so they, you know, they were benefited because of their race, but they didn't necessarily need that benefit the same way someone you know, coming from a disadvantage, disadvantaged background in other ways might have needed it. And so there has been a shift a bit in recent years, you know, away from, you know, when we have uh, those types of lenses that we look at things during the hiring process, you know, and, you know, particularly in university admissions, you know, to think about it in terms of a socioeconomic status background, and some of those types of factors and driving, you know, whether someone has, the economic need, for example, behind a scholarship or admission into a university. So, anyways, I, I think it really is a difficult issue, and you can follow these cases in the courts, and it can be a little bit of whiplash as you go from one court to the next, and things get appealed, and and things get overturned, and and, and it's something we have to continually you know stay on top of.
1: Yeah, the the one of the examples that I really like is is in um, professional football. So in, in the NFL, they have what they call the, the Rooney Rule, uh, which, you know, if, if you go back and historically look at the number of, of uh, white coaches in the NFL, it was almost all white coaches for, for forever. And so they instituted a rule, which they call the Rooney Rule, which says that when you're hiring for a head coach, you have to interview at least one African-American for that position. Um, now anybody who follows football at all knows that there have now been a number of African-American coaches, you know, and the, and the question would be, well, do you think an NFL team would be willing to hire a less than qualified coach just because of race? And obviously the answer is, is no, these are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of stuff are on the line for these. But what happened is they weren't getting people into the pipeline to be considered, and so, so that's one of the things that you can really do rather than having uh, some kind of a thing on the back end to say, well, you know, we're, we're going to set a quota. What you do is you say, we want to increase the number of applicants coming into this pool from these various different uh, disadvantaged groups and having more people in that pool increases the likelihood that we will find one that is actually, you know, qualified for the job so that again, you know. I, I know I've, I've had some African-American friends who really hated affirmative action and wouldn't even check that box because they wanted to be able to say, I don't want my coworkers to think that I got this job for any other reason than I was qualified and capable of doing that, uh, that job. So, you know, it, it is a very complicated um, you know issue in, in that. So, um, so I think that's pretty much what we wanted to, to talk about today. So again, if there are any other questions that somebody wants to throw in that we can answer in about uh, two minutes. Um, We'd love to do that, but otherwise um, I I wanna thank everybody for their ideas and for sharing stuff. So I I felt like it was a very interesting uh, session and hopefully other people did as well, so.